Luke chapter 24, we'll start at verse 13 in just a moment, but as we approach God's word, let us take a moment and let us pray that the Spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds. So if you would, would you join me in prayer? Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13. You can either follow along in your Bibles or you can listen to the story. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us what that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and, and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is, uh, without a doubt, one of my favorite stories in Scripture. 
It has everything that we love about a good story. It's got a, a wide range of emotions. It's got suspense. It's got surprise. It's got humor. I mean, it, it really does have everything that a good story has. And as readers, it's a fun story because we're on the inside of it, or, or we're on the end that the, that the disciples on the road are not. We, we know what they don't know, right? And two weeks ago, we celebrated God becoming human, the fact that God walked among us in the person of Jesus Christ, that he died on a cross for us, and then he rose three days later. We know this story, we sing about this story, we proclaim this story, we find hope in this story, we gather because of this story. And so, when we read about these two travelers on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, we join with them in the story, but, but in a different sense because we know something they don't. We understand something that they don't understand. Now, there's a natural question that's asked about this text, which is, who are these two travelers on the road to, to Emmaus? It tells us that they are disciples, but it also tells us one of them is named Cleopas. And so we know something about him. We know that he, they're not the 11 disciples. And I know you may say, like, hey, 11, I thought there were 12. Remember Judas, and Judas has since hanged himself. Uh, so we have 11 disciples left, and we know that these two travelers, it's likely, well, we know one's not of the 11, and it's likely the other one is not either. It's, 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 it's more likely that they belong to this larger group of people outside of the twelve who surrounded Jesus and followed Jesus and sat under the teachings of Jesus. In a couple of places in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus sends out uh, the 72, right? He sends out the 72 on sort of a short-term mission trip, if you will. Well, that means that there's at least 60 plus the 12 who are traveling with Jesus in such a way that Jesus would entrust that kind of ministry to them and is teaching them how to do the things that he himself has done. And so when, uh, when we hear about these two travelers, it's likely they belong to this. In fact, they were probably even a little bit more, like, there was this, like, they're probably very intimately involved with all the things that Jesus did. If you go back in Luke 24 and you read uh, verse 9 there, it says that when the women came back from the tomb, that they told the eleven what they had seen and all the others. Right? So when the eleven were gathered after the crucifixion of Jesus, and they're told about the fact that the tomb is empty, there's the eleven, but then there's and all the others. And so it's likely these two travelers belong to that group, the all the others. Now, if that's true, and let's, let's go, with it, go with the idea that it is, then we can make some assumptions about, about what these two individuals know, what it is that they understand. They would have known the ancient prophecies about God's Messiah who would come and would redeem Israel, would reestablish Israel and the kingdom of Israel on earth and would liberate the people from those who rule over them. They would have known that uh, Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ or as the Messiah and Jesus affirmed that confession of Peter's. We would have no, they would have known that Jesus himself referred, or Jesus referred to himself as a son of man, or as the son of man, and would have understood that title, son of man, as a reference to being the Messiah. They would have known Jesus to be one who spoke with authority, who taught in a way that was unique and powerful and transformative. They would have seen Jesus perform miracles. 
heal the blind, cause the lame to walk, even bring forth the dead. They would have understood who Jesus was in light of all of this. All that they had seen, all that they had witnessed, all that they had experienced. And it, would have been, it wouldn't have been secondhand knowledge for them, it would have been firsthand knowledge. In fact, their firsthand knowledge would have extended right up until the end for Jesus. Their firsthand knowledge would include the arrest of Jesus in the garden, the prolonged trial. They heard with their own ears the chants of the crowd, crucify him. They may have even stood among the mass of people who would have watched him hoisted up onto a cross. Maybe they stood by as the stone was rolled in front of the entrance to the tomb. And then they were in the room when Mary and Joanna and Mary ran in and said, The tomb is empty. We saw some angels. And they say that Jesus has been raised from the dead. They would have seen and experienced all of this. And now they're walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they're talking about all that has happened. And I I wonder if you could join with them, if you could walk alongside of them on that road, what it is that you would hear. I think on the one hand, you'd hear the facts, the things that happened. But I think if you were to read between the words, or listen between the words, and under the, the topics, I think you would hear confusion and a lot of wondering. I think it would become clear that, that these two travelers did not understand what had just happened. There's an interesting thing that happens at this point, right? Because here these two travelers are on the road, and they have all of these experiences of Jesus, and now these experiences are colliding with their understanding. Their experiences of who Jesus was and what he had done with their experiences, or their, their experiences of Jesus with their understandings of who the Messiah were and was or was supposed to be. And these two things are colliding in this moment. And this interesting thing happens when our experiences and our understandings collide and they don't line up. When that happens, it creates a crisis of sorts. When we come to a place where we say, this is how I understand the world to work. This is how I understand things to be. But my experience doesn't line up to that. We find ourselves in this point of crossroads, this, this, this point of, it truly is a, a point of, of crisis. For It feels like there's a decision to be made. Do we, on the one hand, go and trust our experiences? Or do we, on the other hand, do we hold to our understanding of the way that the world works? It, it feels like we're forced into this place of decision. And it's maybe a a place where we do not want to be. But nevertheless, it's where we find ourselves. We were on the road. And on one side of the road, there's a ditch. It's a ditch in which we disregard our experience in favor of our understandings. Right? We simply say that our understandings have to fall, or our experiences have to fall under our understandings. And if, our, if they don't, 
Well, either we write off our experiences altogether, we rewrite those experiences, or we bend and contort them in such a way that they fit into our understandings. But, but I think the danger in that ditch is that we actually cut ourselves off from ourselves. We begin to distrust ourselves, our ability to perceive the world around us, and we become overly rigid in our application of our understanding in such a way that we refuse to accept anything that falls outside of the bounds of what we have already determined to be the way things are. On the other side of the road is a ditch, another ditch, and it's the ditch where we we get rid of our understanding for our experience, and we let our experience dictate everything. The problem with this ditch is that now, now we are simply blown about by whatever winds or waves we encounter at that particular day. And I think in the end, we become exhausted when we're in this ditch, right? Because there is no universal meaning or understanding of the way the world works. And so after every single experience, we have to reevaluate. After every single experience, we redefine reality because it's those experiences that ultimately define reality. And so, and so I mean, just this is an overly simple example, but think about it. If you go outside right now, the weather is beautiful and it's sunny outside. And if you just use today, your experience would say that weather is this warm envelope that is, is, is something that is, it just... It's beautiful, and it, and it gives you this warm fuzzy all the time. And like, this is what weather is. But then tomorrow, well, well, the way things are going, it could snow, right? And then it's just a cruel, evil like, entity, right? And so we find ourselves, we're in this proverbial place of constantly picking petals off of the flower, right? It's the she loves me. The world is great, and it's wonderful. She loves me not. Everything is the worst. She loves me. Oh, this is just the best. Like, living is wonderful. She loves me not. Why do I even take another breath? She loves me. She loves me not. And this is what happens when we let our experiences define our understanding of the world. When we suddenly can't use any of our past knowledge or past lessons or wisdom. Like, it's only what's happening now. And the reality is both of these ditches are a bad place to be. There's a ditch on one side that only accepts what we already understand, and the there's an other side that only accepts our experience. And revelation happens when we travel the road. It comes when we allow our understanding and our experience to meet. And we wrestle these two things out. We wrestle them out with scripture. We wrestle them out with church tradition and history. We wrestle them out in community so that we don't end up disregarding either one of these things. But neither, is, but neither of these things are immobile and unchanging. And this is where the disciples are, these two travelers on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They are on this road. Their understanding of Scripture is causing them to question whether or not Jesus is really the Messiah. We had thought he was the chosen one who was going to redeem Israel. But he didn't set up a new kingdom. He didn't even liberate his people. In fact, he was killed by our oppressors. How in the world could he be the Messiah? 
But their experience tells them that there was something unique about this man. There was something different about the man. I mean, the way he taught, the fact that he healed people in such a way, the way that he caused people to feel like they belong, the way people gathered around them, and the, 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 the passion that, that came from him. I mean, what do we do with our understanding and our experience? Their understanding tells them that the way that the world works is that dead people stay dead. Their experience says, I was in the room when Mary and Joanna and Mary ran in there and said that the tomb is empty. I heard the disciples who ran to the garden to check say, yes, it is in fact true, the tomb is empty. So what do I do when my understanding and my experience don't line up? Can you feel the predicament that these two travelers would have been on? Can you relate to it at all? My guess is is that we can. If if, if we're being honest. A few weeks ago, I was reading Luke, the Bible at night. We we do that with him. Uh, We started it a few months ago where we're no longer reading from the children's Bible. We've graduated to the full-on adult Bible, right, with the thin pages and everything. And so we are, we started in Genesis and we're just working our way through, which, by the way, if you're a parent, when your kid gets to the age and you can do this, this is a really good lesson in how to edit on the fly, right? Don't let anybody say that the Bible is not dangerous. Do not let anybody say that the Bible is, like, safe, right? Like, and I could, I could, there's a sermon right there that I'm about ready to preach. Anyways, so we're reading through. And we get to the end of Deuteronomy, and we're getting into Joshua, and we've been reading these for a few nights now, and these, at, the, at the end of Deuteronomy into Joshua. And as I was reading on this night, Luke interrupted me. And he said, God seems kind of cruel. The honesty of a nine-year-old sometimes wakes us up, Right? See, we have this understanding that God is loving, slow to anger, and abounding in love. That his kindness is what causes us to to repent. That God is love. But then when we read these texts, like if we're being honest with ourselves, God seems kind of cruel. And what do we do with that? Because it's probably the fact that our understanding or our experience, our experience lines up with a God of grace, a God who accepts, a God who brings us into the home as the prodigals, right? That's what our experience, like we feel that. And yet we have this understanding. Are these the same God even? This dissonance ought ought to exist within us. We ought to wrestle with this. What happens though is because this reality of our understanding in our experience, and what we read, like they come clashing together in one of these places. When we get to that place of discomfort, we want to discharge one of them, the one, just one that makes us uh, most dis- uncomfortable, so that we can feel a little bit more at peace. And this has been a problem throughout church history. There's a whole set of folks who called themselves, they're called the Marcionites, who argued that the God that they read about in the Old Testament could not be the same God in the New Testament. And so they just disregarded the Old Testament, saying that's a different God altogether. And it was a way to sort of try to resolve this tension because of the discomfort that happens when you're at that place where you're experiencing your understanding or even your understanding of the same, same, well, like one text, come clashing together. Like, what do you do right there? You either have a crisis of faith, you either press into the questions and let it wrestle it out, or you fall into one of the ditches. 
And so often the confusion and the, and, the, and the murkiness and the difficulty that comes with staying on the road is abandoned for the ditches. But our job, our job is to stay in the confusion and the murkiness and the difficulty. Our job is to wrestle with, with our experiences and our understandings. And when we do that, we find ourselves... Well, we don't find ourselves, let's be honest. We are the travelers at that point. We are the ones on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. So these two travelers are on the road and they're talking about all these things that had happened, the things that they understand about what Scripture says and about who the Messiah is, and they're talking about their experiences, about what they saw and what they felt And as they're talking, Jesus comes and he joins them. And then Jesus, this is where I just, the scene is is comical to me. Jesus comes alongside and he says, what are you discussing? And they say, well, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Are you the only one who hasn't heard about all the events that have happened in Jerusalem? And Jesus, Jesus, no, no. What things? Tell, tell me about myself. What happened to me? And so they tell him, they proceed to say, like, this was man, he was incredible, and he was a prophet, and we thought that he was the Messiah, the one come to redeem Israel, but he was killed. And that doesn't jive with our understanding of who the Messiah is supposed to be, to which Jesus responds, oh, how foolish you are. Did not the Messiah have to suffer all these things and then enter his glory? And starting with Moses, so from the very beginning, he walks them through the scriptures into the prophets and he says all that was concerning him. Now, let's be clear about something. These two travelers were not ignorant when it came to things of scripture. I'm confident that they knew Scripture at least as good as us, if not, I'm pretty confident, better than us. And yet, they missed Jesus. And even here, as the Scriptures they know so well are being, are being opened for them, and Jesus is revealing things that maybe they missed, even in this, they still miss Jesus. Jesus is right there. Jesus is the one who's teaching them. The Jesus that they had traveled with, the Jesus that they had learned from, the Jesus whose teaching they sat under, like this Jesus that they know so well is teaching them about what the Scriptures has to to say about Jesus, and they miss Jesus. And then they invite Jesus back to their house. They get to where they're going. Jesus, again, he acts as if he's going to travel on just a little bit further. And say, no, 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 it's too late in the evening. Come, 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 stay at our house. And Jesus joins them. He goes into their house. And, and as they sit to eat at the table, Jesus takes the bread There's a sermon here at some point that I'm going to preach. But let's just note that this was not Jesus' place to take the bread. The host is the one who sets the table. The host is the one who welcomes the guest. The host is the one who breaks the bread. 
And in this case, for these travelers, Jesus is a stranger. He's a stranger in their house. He's a stranger that they've invited to stay the night. And yet Jesus takes the place as a host. I think there's a whole sermon right there on the possibility that those who are strangers in our lives might just have the most to teach us about who Jesus is and where Jesus is at in the world. It's probably for another day. Right now, what we'll say is, Jesus takes the bread. He gives thanks. And then he breaks it. And in a moment, Jesus breaks the bread. Their eyes are opened. And they see him. Maybe better they understand. Or maybe they experienced. I I, I don't know. Did they understand in that moment or did they experience? Or was their experience inform what they now understood? I don't know, there's this really weird interplay that happens in that moment, right? Where they experience Jesus breaking the bread in front of them. They experience him welcoming them to the table, and then they understood. Or did they, because of everything that Jesus had taught, now that he broke the bread, now they understand. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't know how these two things work together, and so maybe this is why we have to have let these experiences and our understandings wrestle it out because there's a mystery in there. There's a mystery that comes to us. There's a mystery of both understanding and experience and how these two things relate to each other that that we just can't draw neat lines around. Whatever it is, whatever the relationship is between experience and understanding, what we can say is in that moment something shifted for the disciples. Everything about what they know changed it it, it truly was a paradigm shift there was a book that came out in the 60s uh it's by a guy named thomas kuhn who was a physicist a physicist philosopher guy uh and uh uh, i forget exactly what the book is called but it's really it's a big book for like who people who read physics books are like Physicists, right? But this book actually sold like a million copies or something like that. It's, I think, the structure of all things or the structure, I don't even know, structure to learn. Ah, anyways, in it, he talks about this thing called a paradigm shift. And the reason you know about the idea of a paradigm shift is because of this book. And his thinking was, for so long, we thought that learning and our understanding of the world came through sequential learning, right? So first I learned A, then I learned B, then I learned C. First I learned the alphabet, I learned all the letters, I learned the sounds that they make, I learned how to put them together and some and then I can read, and then I can understand, right? You got the sequential thing. First, some addition, subtraction, multiplication, on and on and on it goes. And his whole thing is like that works to a point until you have all of these experiences that no longer fit the model that you have, and then sequential learning no longer works, and you've got to step completely out of that into a new paradigm. Right? It's this idea of discontinuous learning. We work at learning continuously, and then all of a sudden, boom, that doesn't work, and we've got to shift. And it's like what the disciples had happened in that moment. We knew the Bible verses. We learned all the Bible verses. We learned the prophecies. We understood all of these things. But in that moment, it no longer worked. They had to step outside of that into something new. And the moment they did, they saw Jesus. 
And then the moment they see him, he's gone. And as they, as they process what just happened, there's this beautiful moment in which they look at each other and they say, were not our hearts burning while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Were not our hearts burning? There's something wonderful that happens when we stay on the road and we avoid the ditches and we let our understanding and our experience wrestle it out with Scripture. There's an alignment that comes. There's a scene that comes. There's a, there's a revelation. There's a transformation. Choose your word. There's something, though, that happens in that moment that causes our hearts to burn. He is who he says he is. This is real. Resurrection has happened. And this is what God has been doing all along. We're not our hearts burning as we claim to understand this. This summer, we're entering into a time of renewal. And it is my hope and it's my prayer that this is what happens to us. My hope and prayer is that our understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing in the world and in us would cause our hearts to burn. And, and we're not going to do that by simply pushing into our understanding or pushing into our experience, but really is to bring these two things together on the road and wrestle it out with Scripture and what God is, has revealed in Scripture and what that says and pray for the Spirit to illuminate our eyes and our minds so that we see something that maybe we didn't see before. For me personally, this is a big part of what I'm hoping. I, for the last 11 years, have had the joy and the privilege of preaching almost, I haven't, I haven't kept track, but it's, it's upwards of 45 to 47 sermons a year. I love it. And, and, It's gotten to the place where it's hard for me to read it for me. And, and I'm, I'm not, like this isn't unique. I talk to a lot of pastors who have this, but it's hard not to go to the text and be like, oh, this will preach really good. Or, oh, I want to connect to this over here. This could, this could go, you know, like it's just hard for me not to do. It's hard for me to read it for me anymore. And so 
So part of what I'm hoping for is this summer, for 15 weeks, I'm just going to read it with no agenda. I'm just going to put myself on the road. And it's not, I don't, I don't feel like I'm in this place where my heart's not burning. Like, I, I don't think that I'm burned out. No. But I also don't want those embers to go out. Right? And I say all that, not to make it about me, but just to, to wonder, like, what, what's in this for, like, where are you in this space? Because you think of yourself as a traveler on the road of Emmaus, like, what do you hope God does in you so that, so that your heart burns? Because something new is revealed, that you see something new. Your paradigm's been shifted. Your understanding expanded. Your experience deepened. What would be the thing for you that, that if God met you in that spot, you feel like I'd come out of the other side and be like, my heart is burning. I, I don't know what that is for you. I'm not even to, like entirely sure what it is for me. But I'm going to be on the road between the two ditches. And I fully expect that Jesus is going to saddle up alongside of me and that he will for you as well. Let's pray. You are the God who meets us. Who meets us on the road who meets us in the place of sickness, who meets us at the celebrations of life, who meets us in death. You are the God who meets us. And I pray this year, Lord, that that would be something we could all say. That this was the year that, that Jesus met me maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time. Either way, in whatever number it would be, may that experience of Jesus, may that understanding that comes, may it cause us to burn with passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. <laughs> I don't feel like I need to say a lot to set up the table today. I think it goes without saying that this is not my table, it's not even our table. But truly, this is the table of the Lord's. For he is the host who invites us to come and to taste and see. Other words for experience.
perhaps even other words for come and understand that the Lord is in fact good. I'll admit that <clears throat> this morning my emotions have been rather close to the surface. For those of you who are guests, and I see that there's a number of you this morning, I'm not always this emotional. Although if I talk about my children, I will be that emotional all the time. But some of you know that uh, a friend of mine died yesterday. And I'm not going to say like we were super close or anything like that. Her name's Rachel Held Evans, and some of you know her work. And but she was a friend, and she's someone who supported and encouraged me, and someone who who challenged me on a lot of different levels. And it's been a hard week processing all of that, and walking with friends who are very close. We talk about things that we experience and to experience a mother of a three-year-old and a one-year-old who suddenly dies. Like It's hard not to ask the question that Luke asked, right? So we come to the table. We come to be reminded. We come to, to have some, some of our uh, experiences grounded in something that we understand that is bigger and more beautiful and mysterious than we can imagine. Right? There's the, the melding of the two. Our experience draws us our understanding roots us. Yeah. So anyways, I say all that to say that I want to use some of her words. Some of her words that I believe capture something beautiful about the table that is not ours as an invitation this morning. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It's a bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered around a table. Not because they're rich or because they're worthy or because they're even good. but because they're hungry and because they said yes. So all you who are hungry, all you who have said yes, come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. 